one if you'd like to read along. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. For we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, buenos días. La lectura esta mañana viene de la primera carta a los tesalonicenses, capítulo 2. Hermanos, bien saben que nuestra visita a ustedes no fue un fracaso y saben también que, a pesar de las aflicciones e insultos que, que antes sufrimos en Filipos, cobramos confianza en nuestro Dios y nos atrevimos a comunicarles el Evangelio en medio de una gran lucha. Nuestra predicación no se origina en el error ni en malas intenciones, ni procura engañar a nadie. Al contrario, hablamos como hombres a quienes Dios aprobó y les confió el Evangelio. No tratamos de agradar a la gente, sino a Dios, que examina nuestro corazón. Como saben, nunca hemos recurrido a las adulaciones ni a las excusas para obtener dinero. Dios es testigo. Tampoco hemos buscado honores de nadie, ni de ustedes ni de otros. Aunque como apóstoles de Cristo hubiéramos podido ser exigentes con ustedes, los tratamos con delicadeza. Como una madre que amamanta y cuida a sus hijos, así nosotros, por el cariño que les tenemos, nos deleitamos en compartir con ustedes no solo el Evangelio de Dios, sino también nuestra vida. Tanto llegamos a quererlos. Recordarán, hermanos, nuestros esfuerzos y fatigas para proclamarles el Evangelio de Dios y cómo trabajamos día y noche para no serles una carga. Dios y ustedes me son, tes me, me son testigos de que nos comportamos con ustedes, los creyentes, en una forma santa, justa e irreprochable. Saben también que a cada uno de ustedes lo hemos tratado como trata un padre a sus propios hijos. Los hemos animado, consolado y exhortado a llevar una vida digna de Dios, que los llama a su reino y a su gloria. Would you join me as we pray together? Father, Son, and Spirit, we exalt you for being in our presence. You are not a God that's so high up that you don't long to be with your people. You dwell with the lowly. 
those that are humble, those that are contrite. So we ask now that you would dwell with us and indwell us with your holy word and your holy spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Last week we began studying this letter in the New Testament, a letter to the Thessalonians, and in it we ended with Paul who was affirming the Thessalonians concerning their witness, the way they were sharing their faith, and they really shared it uh, well. It had resounded hundreds of miles away from where they lived. And the Bible says that the call of witnessing isn't just for those quote-unquote professional Christians, missionaries, or evangelists, or pastors. It is the duty and joy of everybody that calls themselves a follower of Christ. It's part of the work of what we would call the priesthood of all believers, what they're called to. And while it's a duty, it is foremost a joy and privilege. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be the one to deliver good news. Hey, you got the job. Hey, your loved one's going to be okay. Hey, it's a girl. It's a boy. Typically, it doesn't feel like a duty to bring good news. We're glad to bring it. And this good news is literally that. Gospel means good news, the good news of God, the King, coming to earth to rescue us in our mess, to come near to us in the very person of his Son. The prophet Isaiah once wrote, How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes salvation. And by beautiful feet, he's not talking about uh, toenail polish color or muscularity. He's saying a welcome presence is that one that brings the good news. People are delighted to hear it and see it. And this good news not only refers to the quality of the message, but also the quality of the messenger, of the witness themselves. About a month ago, I pulled jury duty here in the district, and normally um, I don't get picked. I think sometimes they wonder a pastor, he's either going to say, hang him or let him loose. You know, he's either going to be really harsh or totally liberal. But uh, I got picked this time. My theory fell apart. I got picked. And I got to uh, live up to my word that we actually should serve, right, the city. Um, and in it, as we were debating the verdict, a lot of our debate uh, swirled around, or at least half of it, I would say, swirled around the one eyewitness. You know, could we trust their testimony? Back and forth. Well, they, they seemed hesitant at points. They seemed a little annoyed. They seemed, you know, like they didn't want to come forth with all the, the information. It got me uh, reading and thinking about what makes for a credible witness. Those of you in the field of law and lawyer probably know this off by heart, right? But a bad witness is someone that is defensive, uncooperative, annoyed. If that person is perceived in the courtroom, it really damages their hope of winning the case. On the other hand, a good witness is someone who answers directly, who seems considerate of whatever questions they have, is able to give a good answer, is able to give a clear answer. Well, the New Testament says there are good and bad witnesses as well. 
In fact, one of the patterns you see in the New Testament is that false teachers often have false character. And good witnesses have good character. And that's essentially what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage and what I want to give some time to this morning. What's the difference between a bad witness of God and a good witness of God? So let's look at that together. First, we'll, we'll look at the bad first. And maybe we could sum this up by saying a bad witness is all about selfish gain. Selfish gain. Last summer, my family... Um, and I were vacationing in Grafton, Vermont, and we were staying at the home of one of the elders of Grace Downtown and uh, spending a little time talking to the cross-street neighbors, Mark and Jerry. And as I was talking with Mark, we're getting to know each other better, um, I found out that we both, unfortunately, had something in common. Uh, we were both part of the same cult. Uh, me for a, f a few months and he for several years. When I was a student in Boston, there was a church called the Boston Church of Christ that started. Now it goes under the name the International Church of Christ. Some of you may have heard it before. And it's cultic not only uh, in its theology, which teaches uh, you have to be baptized in their church and baptized in water to be saved. They also exert a lot of control about where you should live, what you should do, who, sh who you should date. They actually had flown him to various cities to match make. Uh, well, maybe for some of you that sounds pretty good. You're thinking, hey, I could take that help, but you wouldn't want it like they, they took it. Um, but at the same time, they were cult-like in their practices. They would target freshmen. Uh, they would uh, put you in a community where you were affirmed, where they just loved you. You just pulled you into everything. And then if you decided to pull out, they threatened you with hell. Uh, you really felt a lot of pressure. Um, and so he was in that for a long time. I was in it um, for a shorter time. And when, once I got out of that church, um, I would be on the subway and hear a conversation strike up behind me. And just by the tone of it, just by the questions that were asked, I would say to myself, this is someone from the Boston Church of Christ. And then I would hear the punchline. Actually, my church, the Boston Church of Christ. It was just the tone. It was the whole way it was done, the character of the witness. Well, uh, in the New Testament, Paul would say the same was true of false teachers and false witnesses. And in the first century, there were plenty of them. Philosophers that would travel around, pastors, uh, prophets that would travel around and infiltrate the early church. And these were some of the ways he described them. They create division. Uh, they're quarrelsome. They place unnecessary obstacles in the way of people believing in Christ. Uh, for some, it was legalism. For others, it was asceticism. You have to deny certain good gifts of God to come into the kingdom of heaven. And here Paul gives us some more specifics of what a bad witness looks like. He mentions error. Now, under error, we could say someone that is an uninformed witness. They don't bother to do their homework. You think about all the questions and objections that there are to the Christian faith. You might have some in this room. Uh, isn't the Bible full of mistakes? Um, you know, it, isn't it uh, true that the Bible supports slavery? Isn't it true that the Bible supports uh, greed? Isn't it true that the Bible uh, just sort of came together haphazardly? Lots of questions and objections, serious ones that people have. And yet a bad witness is someone that really hasn't thought deeply about answering those questions. 
the Apostle Peter says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. But in that he's saying that it's important to take time to prepare to give people thoughtful answers to their questions. Or a bad witness might be someone that is too quick to speak. The Proverbs say that a fool answers quickly. Someone that just loves to argue and get into debates. Or maybe a bad witness is someone that majors on minors. Uh, There's someone that doesn't really have a sense of what the important issues are. Maybe it's uh, talking about what's going to happen in the end times. Or maybe it's about baptism. Or maybe it's some fine point of the Reformed faith. But if you had a conversation with them, you would say, this is the most important thing to this person, not Jesus. And again, you hear this described. Paul says to Titus, one of his uh, disciples, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And so that's an explanation of someone that would be a bad witness. Another trait he gives us is deceit. Whereas the first one might be error out of being misinformed, the other is intentionally misleading people. It might be misleading them concerning what the Christian faith teaches, the doctrine of the Christian faith. It might be really not letting your card show until someone's deeper in community. I I noticed that it was about three months before the Boston Church of Christ actually told me what they really believed. And it was at that point uh, I had enough background in the faith to get out. Or it might be uh, presenting just the shiny, attractive parts of the Christian faith and hiding the more costly parts of the Christian faith in one's witness. Or it might be not being up front with people. You know, one of the tactics in the church, I don't think it's practiced as much today, but would be, you know, the old what they would call spaghetti dinner, where, you know, uh, someone would invite a non-Christian to come to the church, and they'd think, well, I'm just coming for a dinner, and lo and behold, they're being called to convert for dessert, right? (laughs) And uh, nothing wrong with calling people to convert, but the point was, folks felt like, whoa, what about trust, right? What about being up front? And so deceit is another part of a bad character or witness. A third one he mentions is flattery and people-pleasing in verse 4 and 5. He wrote to Timothy, one of his co-workers, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. A bad witness is someone that tends to just echo whatever the culture is saying. Uh, Echo whatever is the prevailing opinion of the day. To say there is no more, nothing really prophetic about their word and witness. When they're sitting around the dinner table with friends or with families, they tend to say things that people could easily go amen to. I agree with. And it might be because deep down, as Paul mentions here, they desire glory. 
says one of the things that, you know, we came to you, we desired no glory from you. Boy, that's a tough one, isn't it? Um, that's a tough one. It may be the reason you came to Washington is we were seeking glory. You know, praise of the city, applause of the city. Or maybe, like me, you are an approval addict. You know, you love to have approval in praise of people. And so your witness is basically a bunch of people going, isn't he nice? Isn't she nice? If we're going to be anything, let's not be nice. It's such a lame word. Um, <laughs> Jesus talks about uh, the apostles and himself being called away from the glory of the world. And you can only see this in the life of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, they were not looked highly upon. When Paul went to the city of Corinth, which was much like Washington, D.C., it was a city that had a certain sophistication. It was a city that valued performance. It was a city that valued rhetoric and speaking. It was a city that looked down on blue-collar jobs. And so the Apostle Paul showed up, and what did he do? Uh, he worked with his hands, a blue-collar job. And when he spoke, he said, I didn't come with sophisticated speaking. And he did so in part, why? Even though he was a brilliant theologian. Because he wanted to show, as he wrote, that the God chose what was foolish, weak, and low, and despised in the world as recipients for his grace. A witness doesn't have to be sharp. It doesn't have to be perfect. This is one of the things that ought to encourage any witness this morning. That God actually means to witness through your weakness. We talked about this last week. What people really need to know is, is this gospel for needy people? Is it for people that don't have it together? And can you open up your life enough to me to see that it's for real? That's what the witness we were called to. He also talks about two other things before we move on to the what's a good witness. He mentions greed, uh, those that witness for financial gain. And it'd be great to say that that doesn't happen today, but it certainly does. Certainly does in the pockets of the church. I was with someone uh, recently who was in Brazil with a lot of churches um, and uh, said as they were uh, watching TV, they heard a pastor say, if you call in just on Tuesday and Thursday, special blessings if you send your money in Tuesday and Thursday. There was a sale on God's grace that day. <laughs> and often the way that's provided is God is presented sort of as a broker of blessing a broker of blessing, and Christians get the power of attorney to claim the ticket. Uh, Ross Dothit, who's written a fine book called Bad Religion, uh, talks about different aspects, the way Christian faith is misrepresented. And in it, he talks about one evangelist, and he says this, he doesn't necessarily promise his readers that God will give them a big house. He just tells stories about how God has blessed him with a big house. All right? That's the way it sort of looks. And he adds, uh, the, the message is, if you don't unleash your words in the right direction, if you don't call in a favor, you will not experience those blessings. Now, sadly, the people that are often take advantage of are uh, the poor and immigrants, people that are in a place of need or just getting their self going in a culture. And these are who these sharks go after. So financial gain. But lastly, uh, impurity. And by this, Paul is probably referencing sexual immorality. Last night, my wife and I watched the movie Spotlight. It just won the Academy Award. And if you've seen it, you know how powerful it is. 
we were actually up in Boston in those days when the Boston Globe uncovered the clergy abuse in the Catholic Church. Uh, and in it, uh, w one of the victims said, um, you know, as much as we tried to oppose and resist, how can you say no to God? Now, I can't think of anything more terrible than when a religious leader takes advantage of people that way. Uh, what a terrible, terrible thing. And at one point, one of the characters said, uh, you know, I lapsed away from the church, but I always thought in my mind I was going to go back. And now that hope has been taken away from me. You know, what a, what a terrible thing. But it doesn't just function at that egregious, wicked level. There's also a way that in the everyday life, a, a Christian's witness can be compromised this way. And here I'm going to get into the touchy subject just for a moment of missionary dating. All right? And I'll tell you already, and by that, what I'm talking about is when uh, a Christian gets romantically involved with a non-Christian, uh, in part, they believe, for the sake of the witness. And I'll tell you already, as a college student, I knew that, okay? So you don't think I'm coming at you on a high horse. But let me tell you why it's not helpful. First of all, it's just ineffective. Um, there was a New York Times article a couple years ago that basically said, you know, these are the true stats on interfaith marriage. In an age of pluralism, I know we love to see everything's easy, but this, again, is not coming from the church, the New York Times, that 40% of interfaith marriages fail and 60% of marriages fail between a Christian and a non-Christian. But aside from that, I would say this. There are two things that become harmful and just confusing there. One is for the witness themselves, they end up splitting their faith. Basically, their romance can, can't have anything to do with their spirituality anymore. And, of course, in the Christian faith, your spirituality and your romantic life, your marriage, go hand in hand. Paul uses the marriage as a primarily example of the way God loves us. But it's also very confusing and unfair for the non-Christian. This is something I noticed in uh, my bad experience of that. And that is, in a sense, it communicates to the non-Christian, um, you know, you need to convert before I'll marry you. And it communicates a conditional gospel, doesn't it? The grace of God is all about uncondition and love and acceptance, but it basically convinces this, puts this person in a very difficult place. It's unfair and unkind, ultimately, I think. So all of these things can be part of a bad witness. But let's now move to what a good witness would be, a good gospel witness. And if selfish gain is what you'd say the first one is, I would say the second one is bold love. Boldness. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Uh, the Apostle Paul here not only refers uh, to his time with the Thessalonians uh, when they dragged him with a mob and put him before the authorities, but also when he was in Philippi when a mob threw him in prison and threw him in the stocks. So this is a guy that had suffered quite a bit with his companions for the sake of the faith. And today, there's a similar cost that those that are witnesses might face. Um, people get fired for having a Bible on their desk. People get fired for donating personal money to an organization that has nothing to do with their job, but they believe in. But they get fired for that. There is a greater cost these days for a witness. Maybe some of you deal with that. Fear that perhaps your faith will cause you to lose your job or lose friendships that are very dear to you. 
But it's very important that we recover boldness in this area. I, I feel in my experience that the Christians I know are much more prone to serve with deeds than they are with word, witness with deeds more than they are with word. Now, deed is so important, right, where the Christian faith is hypocritical. But the idea of, you know, the old adage, uh, witness with deeds and, if necessary, words, that's not true. It's important to witness with words. Someone, if you are a Christian here, spoke good news to you, talked to you about God's grace and their testimony and their story. And so we need to recover some boldness here, and this is where I think we can take heart. Um, I've, I've been reading this past week in the book of Acts, and this is the book about the early church, and it's right on the heels of Jesus' last week of his life, right? And you look at these disciples, the chief one, Peter, denies Jesus three times. The others flee from Jesus. They're up in a room, locked in a room, afraid that the same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. This is their witness until God's Spirit gets a hold of them. The Spirit of Jesus gets a hold of them, and they're totally transformed. It's a beautiful thing. Peter, who was a denier, is used by God to bring in 5,000 people into the early days of the church. 5,000 people. What a beautiful irony. This was what I love about our God. He'll take the very area that we're weak in and that we fail in, and he will make it fruitful. He becomes this great evangelist, Peter. And then when the religious leaders see the apostles, they notice that they are unschooled and ordinary, but they're extraordinary. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. It wasn't their gifts. It wasn't their skill. It wasn't their education. It wasn't, come and look at what I've accomplished their achievements and accomplishments, they had been with Jesus. That was the power. And that really leads us where the power comes from. Paul says, how did he get it? It was boldness in our God. By that he means the presence of God. They were in the presence of God. Now what does the presence of God do for weak and fearful people? In the presence of God, we come to understand that we are completely accepted by the Most High that through the giving of his son for our sin, we are royal sons and daughters with the full rights of sonship. We have God's approval, God's, this is my son and daughter with whom I am well pleased. You can't get in any higher approval in the presence of God. In the presence of God as well, we found ourselves, we find ourselves before the Lord in this place where uh, he has come close to us and near to us and spoken his words of love to us. In the presence of God, you hear, you are my beloved. You are my cherished one. And then the book of Ephesians actually says that the strength that comes, the indwelling power of God's strength, comes from knowing how wide, deep, long, and high is the love of God. And that you would have strength with all the saints to comprehend that. As we are in community, you tell me more about the love of God. I come to know about the love of God. In the presence of God, I come to know his love. That gives me courage. Because perfect love casts out fear. Right? And we're told as well, relating to the first point, that we no longer have a spirit of fear. We have a spirit of sonship. But lastly, in the presence of God, we behold the glory of God. We see a being that... You know, no one can come close to. We fear God because we're in awe of God, of his greatness, of his beauty, of his majesty, his understanding no one can fathom, his greatness no one can fathom. And as that glory catches hold in our heart, we just need to talk about that God. 
I, I fear one of the reasons that we don't witness, or a couple reasons, is we don't believe God loves us, and we don't believe the gospel so great. And we don't believe God is that great. And in his presence, we recover those things. He renews our heart in that way. And we become approved and tested. Paul says here that they were tested that they didn't have uh, you know, bad motives or bad intentions. So the boldness isn't disrespect. Peter said it should be with gentleness and respect. The boldness instead has the quality of love, the last point. He says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I think this might be one of the greatest challenges for busy urban people, and that is sharing our lives, right? We're just so busy. We're so busy um, working up our resume. We're busy with our achievements. We're busy with uh, making sure that our kids have everything they need. Um, sometimes I wonder if my neighbors just see me just running from my car to my house, you know, or they see me just like, you know, someone that's always in a hurry. It takes faith to be able to stop and share your life with someone, right? But I'll tell you, that's the very thing. And what happens is as we share our lives with someone, they fill our hearts up. This is what I so love. Listen to what Paul says. Look at the words, affectionately desirous of you. Why? Because you had become so very dear to us. And then he supplies two images. I mean, you couldn't think of the, any more dearer images than these. He first of all says, we were like a mother to you. In the book of Isaiah, uh, God gives a picture of Israel, and he says, you know, Israel, you're going to be like a child that I nurse, that I bounce on my knee, that I carry on my hip. This picture of God's people as the child that he cares for. And here Paul gives, you know, the, the, the focus of a nursing mother, a mother of young children. We have any mother of young children here? I, do, you, I know we do. I see them beautifully dancing up front. Or we just baptized one, right? I mean, a mother makes a sacrifice to conform her life around the needs of her child, doesn't she? I mean, whether it's the free time. Uh, and she does it with joy. Not all the time, right? But she does it with joy. It amazes me. That's okay, you know. It's okay. Uh, it amazes me. I, you know, I watched my wife give birth to two kids. What amazes me is she wanted to do it again after the first one. I mean, you know, you see this woman go through this incredible uh, pain. It's incredible. You know, the, the first time it dawned on me that my wife could really knock me out if she wanted to was when I saw her delivering our first child. I thought, the courage of this woman. And then after it's done, you know, a year later, they go, well, how about another one? You know, this idea of a mother who's willing to give all, to sacrifice, to care. Paul is saying, we were like that with you. I was willing to give up my free time to spend time with you. I was willing maybe even that my career would suffer to be with you. I was willing to open up my home even when I was tired. I wasn't on my best point. You know, I love this story of a, a woman who was a, a very well-known evangelist. <coughs> God used her to bring many people to Christ, and she said, um, you know, there was a woman I was trying to spend time with, I loved witnessing, and she came over one day at the wrong time. She came over one day when I just was at my wit's end. I was totally, it was a meltdown. I had fallen apart. And then she kind of looked at me and left. And I thought all I could think of was I ruined my witness. 
I've ruined the opportunity for this person to come to know God. Well, the woman did come to know God, and later she said, you know what I'm going to say. Later she said, you know what the change for me was? It was that day when I saw you weak and you couldn't hold it together. That's when I knew that this gospel was for me. But also he mentions as a father. We encourage and exhort you. We affirm you. I have, you know, two daughters, a daughter now in college, and it's very interesting to see uh, what they call mom for and what they call dad for. And it's all, I had my two, my second daughter, almost like a prophet, said this when she was two years old. She looked at me and said, I love mama because she takes care of me, and I love papa because he plays with me. You know, that's not all I do. But I got a little offended at that because I changed diapers. I bathed a kid. I did bath time. I spent, but she was like, you know, mama nurtures and dad. I, you know, my daughters tend to call me for achievement accomplishments, wisdom advice, maybe about money or classes like that, you know. But what they want is exhortation and affirmation. And Paul says, we were that to you too. So our role of a Christian at times is, you know, you got to exhort in your witness. you got to be willing to ask the challenging question. you got to be willing to say, come on, just don't stay there with the belief. Press on with it. And so these are characteristics that mark a good witness. Well, let me say this as we close. Um, every one of you in this room that uh, name yourself a follower of Christ, uh, the question isn't, will you witness? You are a witness. God has commissioned you to be a witness. That ought to give you a lot of encouragement. And no, it's not just the conversations that happen about Jesus Christ with neighbors and friends. But it's also our witness at work, right? Our business dealings, are they up front? Where people say, you know, the way they spin language, I can one of the questions we ask our elder candidates and diaconate candidates is, would anybody be surprised that you were being nominated for this office? Yeah. Is your character known by that? And so God has led us, commissioned, and called us. I would urge you this week not only to think about your own life, to take heart that God can use you, but to pray specifically that God might use you to be a witness. Let's pray. God, thank you for the way that you have witnessed to us through your Holy Spirit, through many people. Uh, we pray that you would make the witness of the church something that is just like Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.